This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome back to your podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. We release brand new episodes every Thursday, so subscribe to make sure you stay up to date. This week we're discussing the story of the 17th century woman who left an amazing literary legacy. Her name was Alice Thornton, and she wrote four books, including three autobiographies, that provide a remarkable insight into life at the time and during the English Civil War. Joining us to discuss Alice's story, including her connection to the English heritage site of Midlam Castle in North Yorkshire, are Dr Cordelia Beatty, Senior Lecturer in History at the University of Edinburgh and the lead on the Alice Thornton's Books Project. Hello, thank you for having me on the podcast. English Heritage Properties Historian Will Wyeth. Hi there. And Postdoc Researcher Dr Joe Edge. Hello. Thank you all for coming on. Let's talk about Alice's early life, first of all. Cordelia, where and when was Alice born? Alice was born in Kirklington in North Yorkshire in 1626 as Alice Wansford, daughter of Christopher Wansford and his wife, Alice Osborne. What was her family life like? She was the fifth child of seven and the youngest daughter. Her father was an MP in Yorkshire in the 1620s And by 1630, he'd made the family estate financially secure. So she had quite a privileged upbringing. Her father's connections to the royal court meant they also spent some time in London. Then in 1633, the family relocated to Ireland as her father's friend and mentor, Thomas Wentworth, had been made Lord Deputy of Ireland. And there was a role for Christopher Wansford in Dublin. Right. So that's quite a relocation, really. And, you know, in those days, isn't it? How long did the family spend over in Ireland? They were there for nearly a decade. When Wentworth was recalled to England, her father took over as Lord Deputy of Ireland in early 1640. But he died rather suddenly that same year at just 48 years of age. Joe, do you know how Alice's father died? She does include a long description of his deathbed scene. And it seems that he starts feeling unwell after a meal with some of his friends, other politicians, and um, retires to his room and kind of a few days later he uh, dies. So it's difficult to know, obviously, the exact cause of death, but that is how Alice describes it. Right. And what year was this? This was in 1640. And he was... 48. 48. Okay. That's quite a shock, isn't it, for a family to deal with, especially when they're over in Ireland as well. They're not in England at the time. What did Alice's mother then decide to do with the family as a result of her father's death? Well, they initially stay in Dublin. Um, Alice's mother needs to sort out her late husband's estate. But the Irish rebellion breaks out in October 1641, so the following year. And Alice's mother fears for the safety of the family, they're Protestants. So they initially have to hide in in Dublin Castle. But then Alice's mum arranges for them to travel back to England. They leave most of their possessions behind. They just travel with two trunks of clothing. A bit of background on the Irish Rebellion. So the Irish Rebellion is largely about the Catholics wanting more say in how the country is run, less English rule. I see. Okay, And this is why this family were particularly afraid, I suppose, of, of their presence at the time. What was the situation in England at the time then? There had also been some fighting in England, particularly in the northeast of England, over Charles I's attempts at religious reform in Scotland. Parliamentarians were also criticising the personal rule of Charles I, 
and had already pressured the king to execute the family friend Wentworth. So this is, you know, obviously a worrying time, but they immediately, initially, sorry, feel quite safe in Chester. But the English Civil War breaks out the following year. All this must have had a terrible effect on Alice Thornton. How does she describe how it affects her? She tells a number of of quite scary events from that first period of fighting. Often kind of she describes them as being a near-death experience, but God has saved her. So, for example, when the parliamentarians unsuccessfully attacked Chester in July 1643, she tells us that she was standing at a window and a cannon bullet goes so close to the window that the window closes on her and she falls to the floor. She also tells us that the family decide to move back to Yorkshire, back to their family lands, They have quite a kind of scary time on on the route. Uh, There are threats from soldiers and so on. And they find that they can't make it all the way to the mother's property of Hipswell because there are soldiers who've taken over that property. So they have to keep moving around, staying with, with friends and family. So we get a clear sense from Alice that it was an unsafe time to be a royalist in the north of England. So one of the significant events in Alice's books takes place at Midlam Castle, which is an English heritage property. Will, what can you tell us about this fortress in the Yorkshire Dales of Midlam? It's located in Wensleydale in North Yorkshire, which is today famous for its cheese. More generally, North Yorkshire is a part of England with rolling hills and and dales and settlements of honey-coloured stone. It's very flattering in sunset. And the castle sits in one such village called Midlam. One of the most important things about medieval Midland Castle is that it was much more of a palatial residence than a military fortress. So in the time before the Civil War, it was a place of luxury and entertainment. And in terms of the buildings that are there today, if you walk through the front gate, you'll be struck by two things. The first is the Great Tower, this enormous Romanesque structure, which dates to the 12th century. So it's over 800 years old at the centre of the castle and then surrounding it on four sides are the curtain walls which at the lower levels date to the 14th century and which were expanded a century later to allow uh, taller buildings to be built on their inside faces. Now what we have today at Midlam Castle is only about 50% of what was there probably also during the Civil War actually. Just to the east there was a raised platform uh, surrounded by ditches called a bailey and there's a farm there now so you can still see the outline of it. Now the wider area of the castle outside of its if its enclosing walls is also interesting. At, at one point there were seven different hunting parks belonging to the castle. That's nearly double what you would usually find and there's all sorts of interesting things going on in those hunting parks. Not just deer and rabbits being kept and hunted but also raising of, of horses and hunting dogs and so on. And just to the south of the castle but still within sight of it is the remains of, of an earlier earthwork castle called Williams Hill. And that, we think, was built in the late 11th century, and it's from there that the owners of what was to become Midlam Castle, they left Williams Hill, moved down the hill, and built themselves an enormous stone tower in the 12th century. So that's that's roughly Midlam Castle. <laughs> right, yes. And of course, one of the most important aspects of Midlam is the fact that it's connected to, well, a king. A king, yeah, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> who is that? <laughs> The king, who, who actually had quite, quite a short reign, people who don't know about Richard III, the king in question, don't necessarily, his impact is quite substantial because of his depiction in, in Shakespeare's plays and then the subsequent efforts to present a more nuanced interpretation of, of his life and his character. His remains were found in a car park in Leicester in 2012, one of the most interesting archaeological stories from, from this millennium, I think, so far. Now, and 
Richard lived at Middleham Castle sometime both before and during his reign from about 1483 to 5 is when he was king. He lived there with his wife Anne Neville and their son Edward Middleham who was probably born at the castle also lived there for some time. But now another figure a looming figure connected to Midland's medieval past was Richard Neville, the kingmaker Earl of Warwick, who died in 1471. Richard um, Neville and, and his wife Anne Beecham lived at Midland, and Richard had a hand in deposing two kings of England, though he was himself just an earl. And during his time, Midland was was almost like the jewel of his his, his crowns, the the very centre of his political world, and and. For much of England, actually, during that time, the centre of political England was at Midland. Such was his power and his heft in, in the landscape. But one of the things that we're interested in doing at Midland Castle and actually all our sites to, is to tell the story of people who don't usually get a say. And in the case of castles, we try to tell uh, non-aristocratic stories as much as aristocrats. So alongside kings and queens and earls and countesses, we are hope to talk at Midland about people like the servants who dished up fine dishes in the kitchen and, and the paupers who begged for food at the gate and the estate officials who kept things running, as well as telling the story of people from Midland's medieval heyday, like Richard Neville, like Richard III, like the servants and, and so on. We want to talk about the castle after its medieval heyday. And that, that includes people like Alice Thornton, this incredible figure who's the subject of research that my my, my fellow guests are, are much more informed about than, than I can shed light on. <laughs> of course. And we will um, talk more about Alice Thornton's writings with Joe. Joe, how and when did this English heritage property of Midlam Castle come into Alice's writings? At the end of Alice's first book of my life, she includes a passage and the passage is headed my deliverance from drowning in the river at Midlam, when I went to be a witness to my sister Danby's first Francis, born at Midlam Castle in the year 1644. Now, Alice is writing this about 25 years later, probably in the late 1660s. So she's remembering back to her time as a kind of 18-year-old woman who, in the middle of a very kind of vicious period of war, goes to attend her sister, who is giving birth. Now, I'll read out Alice's story of the near drowning in her own words because it's it's very interesting. And, and as Cordelia previously mentioned, you know, Alice talks about these near-death experiences. So what Alice says is that the river proved deeper than we expected it, and I kept up my horse as well as I could, so bore up a long time. But when we were gone so far that I could not turn back, the river proved past riding, and the bottom could not be come to by the poor mare. So I saw myself in such apparent danger and begged of God to assist me, and the poor beast, I rode on, and to be merciful to me and deliver me out of that death for Jesus Christ his sake. And the poor mare drew up her forefeet, and I perceived she did swim. I gave her the reins and took of the short reins of the breech, and gave her the head with all the help I could, and clasped my hands around her mane, and freely did commit myself to God to do what he pleased with me. And she did by mercy bear up her head and swam out above a quarter of a mile, crossed the dreadful river, and by God's great mercies brought me over that river into safety. So she is travelling. We're not quite sure where from, but she is travelling probably some 12, 15 miles to be with her sister, who is, is at Midland Castle. So her sister is called Catherine Danby, and she is married to Thomas Danby, and they are royalists, and they are actually fugitive at hiding out in the castle. Their home at Snape is not safe. And Alice's sister, Catherine, um, is giving birth. And so the reason that we know about that, you know, Catherine was giving birth 
is because Alice was talking about a near-death experience, which, in fact, she notes later in the book, after the main body of the work and outside of the chronological sequence. So we think she kind of forgot to incorporate it into the main narrative. So this is how Midland Castle comes into Alice Thornton's books, because she goes to be with her sister Catherine when she's giving birth. Interesting as well that um, even if you're writing a piece of fiction, a woman on horseback riding to the aid of her sister who's pregnant during a time of political upheaval and civil war and all the danger that that entails and all the personal danger that comes with giving birth as well and also nearly coming to an end yourself in a river on a horse. That's it's all quite dramatic stuff, isn't it? Um, and it it's is. a true story. It, well, I mean, this is Alice's recounting well. <laughs> of the story 25 years later. But yeah, it's quite an incredible thing for her to have done. And she was only 18. And it's a very dangerous, very dangerous time. Her sister is younger than her, though, for this, isn't it? No, her sister's older. Her so sister's Catherine, older. Right. Catherine's born about 1615. And so in 1644, she's about 28, 29. She got married in 1630 and she had her first child in 1631 when she was about 16. And by this point, she had been pregnant for the vast majority of her married life. And she was giving birth to her 15th of 16 children at Midlam. And by this point, she'd suffered suffered six stillbirths and actually had eight live births. So she, she had been basically continually pregnant for the last 15 years. Goodness me. How many of those children also survived into adulthood or...? Ten children are born alive. Six are stillborn. No more than eight survive to adulthood, possibly fewer mm. in terms of Catherine. So, so I mean, you know, this is a, a, a dreadful situation. From a modern standpoint, at the time, it's still completely dreadful, but it's quite normal, which is quite mind-blowing. To pick up on the background of why Alice was compelled to ride across the countryside and across a river to attend the birth of her sister's baby. What was going on in Alice's life at the time? So Alice is 18 years old. She's living with her mother and probably her younger siblings. As I say, we're not quite sure where, although we think this is August 1644. We've been able to kind of date that from archival records. And so Alice's older sister, Catherine, is obviously married to Thomas Danby. She's she's having this baby. And obviously, as we've said, you know, Yorkshire, 1644, is an extremely dangerous place to be, especially if you're a woman. There's war, there are soldiers who pose all kinds of dangers. But the reason that Alice kind of makes this journey, and I think to answer why she does this, we need to look at childbirth, you know, and and the kind of rituals surrounding childbirth in early modern England. Because there's no uniform experience of childbirth right in this time. Much like today, we've got this projected ideal that we can trace in art, literature, law, and other evidence. And obviously, we know far more about the experiences of upper class literate people than we do of ordinary folks. So, you know, we always have to bear these ideals in mind versus possible reality and avoid generalising. But we can kind of put together the sort of birthing experience a woman of Catherine Danby's rank might experience. So there's a way that you do childbirth in the in the early modern period. Nowadays, if you're going into hospital to have a baby, you would have a named birthing partner. And it's not just a free for all nor would you want it to be, I assume. But in this time, in the mid-17th century, an upper status woman or any, you know, would have more than one other woman in the birth chamber with her. You'd have a midwife. And then you would have some other women in the room to witness the birth. This is partly for comfort, for, for spiritual comfort, for physical comfort, to help the midwife to provide you with that kind of... Um, that love and friendship that you would need at this vulnerable time. It's also important to have women witnessing 
and testifying that a live birth happened because if the baby was still born there were rules about making sure that there hadn't been an infanticide if for example if a woman was unmarried and so there are important legal things in place here it would probably be quite rare for a man to get involved in any process of birth i mean there might you know obviously we don't know a lot of what happened in most cases but um generally birth is a, a uniquely feminine experience and and who is there with you in that room you need to be able to trust people so Catherine wouldn't just have been giving birth with only a midwife but let's bear in mind her and Thomas are fugitive in this castle it is not probably not a particularly comfortable or relaxing environment she's vulnerable because she's giving birth and she's vulnerable because there's a war on and she's a fugitive and so her friends her family her neighbors the women that she trusted you know it was important to have the right people there and so Catherine was, you know, as I say, she's doubly vulnerable and you can't just say, hey, we're hiding in this castle. Could some women come and help me with this birth, please? So Alice and probably her mother were perhaps the most physically nearby of all of Catherine's relations. And they've obviously just survived, as Cordelia said, this fleeing from Dublin and this arduous journey back from Cheshire. Alice is young, you know, she's able to ride a horse and somehow a message would have been sent out and she would have kind of got to her sister in her hour of need, perhaps with a servant. And although, you know, this is something Catherine has done so many times before, you know, she's her 15th child, it doesn't make it any less difficult. And so the importance of Catherine to her sister Alice and the importance of Alice being there to then not only witness the birth, but to act as a, as a witness to the baptism, that was really, really important. And Catherine's birth of the child, was it successful? Catherine on this occasion gives birth to a boy and he ends up living until he's nearly three years old as we found out from other archival records. So as I've said, there's these three witnesses, Alice, there's Lord Loftus and Colonel Branding. So baptism at this time, there's a, a kind of set protocol, which is that you have two witnesses, or I suppose godparents of the same gender as the baby, and one of the opposite. So this is a boy, so there's Alice, and then there's two male witnesses. Okay. Well, what was the child's name? Despite Alice noting that the child's name was Francis, he was actually called Edward. And Thinking back to, you know, Edward of Midlam and Richard III and the royalist inclinations of the Danbys, I do wonder if there's some connection there to calling this child Edward, especially at this time of civil war. But that's complete speculation. Now, bearing in mind, people in the pre-modern era didn't have information at their fingertips about birth dates, names. They didn't have telephone, internet. They couldn't just phone up, you know, grandma and find out when someone was born. Things really did get confused. And Alice is writing in the late 1660s and she says the child's name is Francis and she calls him her first Francis. And that's because the year after this, in 1645, Catherine gave birth to her final child who was called Francis. And Alice notes that he was named after another of that name. But I've actually examined the Danby family records in the North Yorkshire County Record Office And that indicates that Alice was actually confused about which son this was because the first Francis Danby was actually born in 1640 and he died in July 1645. At Midlam on the 26th of August 1644, Catherine gave birth to Edward, who would then die in July 1647. So both of these Danby boys died young. And thinking back on it sort of 25 years later, Alice confused the names. This baby was Edward, according to the Danby records. And he would die, as I say, shortly before his third birthday on the 6th of July, 1647. So it just goes to show that uh, whilst it's an autobiography, she uh, doesn't necessarily have the most reliable memory as a writer. People didn't record things the way that we would now. No. You know, you wouldn't have that kind of, here's your birthday, here's your birth certificate, the sort of thing. Yeah. Right. Okay. 
Will, you touch upon this medieval history of the castle earlier. What happened between the death of Richard III and the Civil War period, which I'm guessing is about 200 odd years, isn't it? Yeah, so so it's, it's just under 200 years. And so there's quite a few things happen, but I'll stick to two key points to kind of illustrate the general trend of what's going on at Midlam. The first is to say that Richard III's death marked the formal end of the Wars of the Roses and the, the new Tudor monarchy, which was the new regime, by virtue of having defeated many enemies, found itself in char- uh, the new owner of many, many castles, including places like Midlam. And although the crown wasn't especially interested in maintaining all of these castles, it was keen in collecting the monies from the vast estates attached to them. So as early as 1517, if not earlier still, well into the early Tudor period, the money generated from the estates of Midlam Castle was used to pay the garrison at Berwick-upon-Tweed, which is in the far north of Northumberland, over 100 miles away, 170 kilometres north of Midlam. Now, the job of these soldiers at Berwick was to monitor the border against Scottish raids and to generally act in a threatening way towards the Northern Kingdom. Now, what this means for Midlam is that although the castle was still probably inhabited by the people who ran the estates, who kept the accounts, who made sure the right grain and and animal produce was collected and doled out every year, there was no single figure living at the castle in whose interest it was to keep it as a palatial residence. So there was no lord or no lady living at Midland Castle at the time. So that's point one to remember for this period after the death of Richard III and leading up to the Civil War. The second point, a rather shorter point, is that in 1604, the Crown sold the castle to Sir Henry Lindley. So this is before the Civil War, but we're, we're approaching it. Now, Sir Henry Lindley's descendants held it at the outbreak of the Civil War. In this period, in the early 1600s, Sir Henry took up residency within the buildings, though we don't know where he, if he lived in the, the rather grand Great Tower or one of the ranges built up against the curtain wall, fragments of which survive today. But from the evidence on the ground, we're fairly certain that there were no major building works during his tenure. And his will of 1608 records him rather grandly as Henry Lindley, Knight of Midland Castle. And the Civil War was, was to begin just over three decades after his Will was written in uh, 1642. Right. What happened at the castle after Alice had her sort of adventure there, helping her sister give birth? After the Civil War finally draws to a close, in either 1661 or 62, we're not sure exactly which, the castle was sold by Edward Loftus, who was married to the Lindley heir, Jane, to a member of the Wood family of Middlesex. So that's, that's roughly the area of modern London. Now, the Wood family were merchants heavily involved in overseas commerce, trading in sugar and cotton, probably imported from India. Later, members of the family served in the East India and South Sea companies. Their interest in Midland Castle itself was, it seems, mainly commercial as an asset to lease out rather than as a home for themselves. They they tend to have stayed mainly in, in London. In terms of the architecture of the castle, it's around this time that we think facilities like a malt kiln, which is involved in the process of making ale, and a small horse mill or apple press were being constructed within the buildings, within buildings at the castle that were previously very nice accommodation blocks. So so this is telling us that there's a change of character at the site. Now, we're not sure exactly when that dates to, but, but it's certainly around the time that the woods uh, take ownership. Over the course of the 18th and 19th centuries, the castle looks to be more and more being used as a farm with outbuildings and workshops being built into the partially 
collapsed ruins of buildings. And there's there's a really nice anecdote from the 19th century of someone who describes visiting Midlam, and they say they're describing the Great Tower, which is this great hulk of masonry, but it's it's partly ruined at this point. But they say to illustrate how, how, how much of it actually does survive, that they witnessed a, a cow climbing the stairs all the way from the ground floor of the Great Tower all the way to the roof and be able to make it back down to suggest how well built the castle was, which is quite a nice anecdote. <laughs> Brave cow as well in my books. Well, I was going to um, say, yes. Yeah, yeah, quite an adventurous cow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so in the 18th, 19th century, we've got this, this kind of gentle transformation from a place that was previously a palatial residence, then it becomes a refuge during the Civil War, then it becomes some sort of asset to be leased out, gradually becomes a farm, and then um, in the early 20th century, its owners gifted it to the state, and English Heritage have been looking after it since since about 1984. Well, if we sort of wind back the clock and go back into the Civil War period and pick up our character of Alice Thornton, we're now looking at Alice's later life. Cordelia, how and when did Alice meet her husband? Well, she married William Thornton in December 1651. And we know that Alice actually wasn't keen to get married at all. But her oldest brother, George, had accidentally drowned earlier that year. Again, this was in in the River Swale, uh, quite a fast-moving river. And with his death, the family decided that Alice should marry so that her future would be financially secure. Her late father's estate, um, especially his Irish lands, were still being challenged in the courts, and the Yorkshire lands had been confiscated by Parliament. So Alice's uncle basically does a deal with William Thornton's uncle, Richard Darley, that Alice would marry William. In turn, Darley, who was on the local parliamentary committee, would return the Yorkshire lands to the Wandsford family. William didn't have as much property as Alice's family, and his family were Presbyterians. So this wasn't her ideal match, but she decided to go along with it. Did they have children together? Yep. So Alice became pregnant a total of nine times. She had five daughters and four sons. How did they survive? Did they survive into adulthood? So we only know the names of seven of Alice's nine children. Two were stillborn or died very shortly after birth, and so she doesn't note their names. And only actually three of the seven named children survived childhood, and they were Alice, nicknamed Nally, Catherine and Robert. Her daughters, Elizabeth and Joyce, and her sons, William and Christopher, were all under the age of two when they died. So like her sister, she experienced a great deal of this kind of terrible loss of her children. Yes, that's one thing that they have in common, sadly. Does she write about how she copes with the tragedy of losing her children in in her various books? Yeah. So Alice Thornton was a deeply religious woman. That's the framework through which she explained much of her suffering and her terrible grief. And obviously children died much more frequently in Alice's time than they do now. Stillbirths are more common, childbirth more risky, childhood diseases such as smallpox were absolutely rife. So if a child made it to adolescence, they basically already survived the worst. Now, this doesn't mean that parents or people like Alice love their children any less than they do now. That's quite a common misconception about this period. People just had to deal with the grief of losing children much more often, and they were much more aware of the likelihood of losing their children. And I think there's one account that Alice writes about the birth of her first son and fifth child on the 10th of December, 1657. So Alice is about 31 at this time. And this child died sort of half an hour after he was born and we don't actually know his name. But this is Alice's account. 
and there's a kind of content warning here for sort of childbirth related stuff if anyone okay would rather skip that's completely understandable so what alice says is it pleased god in much mercy to restore me to strength to go to my full time my labor being three days but upon the wednesday the 9th of december i fell into exceeding sharp travail in great extremity so that the midwife did believe i should be delivered soon but lo it fell out contrary for the child stayed in the birth and came cross with his feet first so he's breech mm. and in this condition continued till thursday morning between two and three o'clock at which time i was upon the rack in bearing my child with such exquisite torment as if each limb were being divided from the other for the space of two hours when at length being speechless and breathless i was by the infinite providence of god in great mercy delivered but i having had such sore travail in danger of my life so long and the child coming into the world with his feet first caused the child to be almost strangled in the birth, only living about half an hour, so died before we could get a minister to baptise him, although he was sent for. Goodness me. So Alice's unnamed son lived only half an hour after a torturous and dangerous birth. And Alice kind of frames this pain in her moving account and frames this terrible loss as a providential one. Now, Alice is a devout Anglican, a proponent of what we might call high church Christianity, and the version of, of Protestantism to which she subscribed explained loss and suffering as coming from God's divine will. And that's, in fact, why she writes this, you know, in this way of being delivered from evil. You know, it's kind of it's a sign that God is kind of on her side. Now, to a woman like Alice, suffering and torture, so what she calls exquisite torments and being on the rack, you know, these are blessings from God to be actually born quietly and with minimal fuss. So. Only God could know why Alice's birth was so difficult, why her son was breech and why he died. God's reasons weren't to be questioned. And that's how Alice comforts herself in dealing with this tragedy. And there was obviously not much time. The child couldn't be baptised, but he was allowed a church burial. So that's good. And, and Alice also lost older children. So her daughter, Betty Elizabeth, who was born in, in February 1654, she died at the age of two from what Alice calls rickets and she frames Betty's death as God's will. You know, it pleased God to take from me my dear child, Betty, who had long been in the rickets and consumption. So explaining such a terrible and cruel loss actually as a manifestation of God's will, which must have an important reason that only God knew, that actually provided Alice with comfort. It's also worth noting that what Alice means by rickets and whether or not that matches up to what we know as rickets today, which is a vitamin D deficiency. We can't we can't know that. And of course, infectious diseases, as I've said, threatened the lives of children much, much more than they do today. In 1667, Alice's household was struck with smallpox, which infected her youngest son, Robin, first before being passed to her daughter, Catherine, and finally to Nally, who was a teenager at the time. Now, all three of these of these children survive. And in fact, these are the three children who make it to adulthood. But there were times where Alice really feared for their lives. And again, she thanked God when they were delivered from death. And so that is how Alice comforts herself in terms of her own torturous childbirths, the loss of babies, the loss of children and the sickness of her children. What about her life with her husband then? Was that a, a long term marriage? Yeah, they were married for about 14 years until his, his death. But it was difficult in a number of ways and, and not just because they lost so many children. It was partly, as I mentioned, she felt that she was marrying down. William was a member of the minor gentry in, in Yorkshire, but didn't have as much 
money as her family were accustomed to in her in her youth. One of the conditions for their marriage was that William would build a home for them on his family land in Rydale in North Yorkshire. But it took nearly 10 years for this property to be completed. So they spent the first eight years of their marriage living with Alice's mother. And it's only when she died that Alice and William move on, arriving in Rydale in summer 1660. And Alice kind of talks about this as being a move to another country, even though it's just kind of moving across Yorkshire. But obviously, she's feeling kind of the loss of her her family and friends. And then they've barely been in this new house for a year when bailiffs arrive at the door. William had taken on responsibility for Alice's late father's estate against her advice. So they're deeply in debt, compounded by her husband's habit of gambling on the horses. A lot of these debts she only finds out about after his death. She also tells us that William had a melancholy disposition. So it doesn't seem to have been the happiest of marriages. He dies in 1668 at the age of just 44. And what did Alice then do without her husband around? She's basically kind of dealing with the aftermath of him dying interstate with a lot of debts. She's trying to raise three surviving children without much money, and she's particularly keen that her son, Robert, gets a good education. So we see her kind of looking for for money to kind of support him for a number of years. I mean, she lives for another 40 years, dying at, at the age of 80. So there's quite a long period of time as a widow. But because of these debts that she doesn't manage to pay off, her sons-in-laws, so both her daughters uh, marry, the sons-in-laws take over all Alice's property in 1692. And Thomas Comber, who's married her daughter Alice, um, her daughter, uh, we sometimes call her Nally, he gets East Newton, where Alice lives, but he lets her stay there and he gives her a fixed sum of money each year to maintain herself, so a form of pension. So we see her quite destitute at the end of her life in contrast to hanging out at the royal court in her youth. Yes, but despite all that, she does live to this ripe old age, as you've mentioned, of 80 years old, which is... yeah. Well, I mean, having got through all those difficult childbirths, she then kind of, while being kind of not having much money, she does, she does live to a ripe old age. And it's the men in the family that tend to die much earlier. I mean, her son, Robert, dies before her. When she dies, it's just the two daughters who survive her. And she she survived, I think, despite all these traumas, the loss of her father, the loss of her husband, her own losses of her children. And she's gone through a very tumultuous time in English history as well, both in Ireland and in England, being um, of the uh, Anglican Protestant faith. So there's a lot for this woman to have gone through, and I can understand why she perhaps wanted to put pen to paper. And we know a lot about Alice because of what she has written. So when did she start first writing her books, her sort of memoirs? Uh, Well, she notes that she started writing the first book of her life in early 1669, so not long after her husband's death. But we also know that she circulated another book around this time to close friends and family. And this was perhaps what she calls her book of remembrances, which she seems to have started earlier in the 1660s. How old would she have been at the time then that she was starting to write? Uh, So she's around 40. This must have been fairly unusual, I presume, for a woman to be writing and writing about herself in 17th century England? Well, there are other women who write accounts of their lives in this period, but she is unusual in a couple of ways. First, she writes multiple accounts of her life which have survived. 
Other women who we know did this were usually of a higher social position, like Lady Anne Clifford, who had five castles, including Skipton Castle. Alice lived in a a nice hall with some land, but she's not quite the same uh, level of privilege as Lady Anne Clifford. Um, There is Catherine Austen, who's from a wealthy mercantile family. She probably wrote more than one account of her life, but only one manuscript has survived. Also, Alice doesn't just write four separate accounts. She rewrites events. Lady Anne Clifford predominantly wrote about different periods of time in her life, whereas Alice tends to rewrite the same event a number of times. We might compare her with Samuel Pepys, who we now know worked and reworked some of his diary entries from earlier accounts. That's very interesting. I'm not a psychologist, and I'm sure none of us on this podcast are, but uh, I think that's a really interesting psychological question, isn't it? Why does someone write and rewrite? Any ideas? Well, that's one of the questions that our, our project is seeking to answer. We do know that she shared one of her first books in order to counter rumours that were circulating about her and the local rector, Thomas Comber, who's recently married her 14-year-old daughter. And these first books give an account of her life. As we've said, a key feature is the many times that God saved her from death. And she says that he would not have done that if she'd been the sinful woman that her detractors were making her out to be. The other two books of her life were probably written a bit later, although, as I said, they also largely dwell on on earlier events and don't go much beyond 1669. There are some references to events up to the 1690s. But these both discuss at length what property Alice should have inherited from her father, Christopher Wansford, and what property her daughters should have got from their father, William Thornton. So property matters are clearly a key motivating factor in her writings. The final book also returns repeatedly to the rumours spread about her in 1668. And we know that Alice left all of these books to her daughter, Nally, in her will. So there's a sense that she wanted her family to have all the information to clear her name in terms of sexual fidelity, the reasons for her daughter's early marriage, and the mismanagement of the family's finances. What were these rumours that blighted her during Alice's life? While William was still alive, rumours spread that Alice was having an affair with this young rector. He's in in his 20s and that one of the reasons she's trying to marry her young daughter off to local vicars to kind of keep him close. But they were saying that, yeah, that she had been cheating on William with the local vicar. Oh, I see. So she denied that and, and wrote about it in her later sort of remembrances. Yeah, she she blames her niece by marriage, Anne Danby, who seems to have some kind of axe to grind. She says that Anne and her servants spread these rumours and she's quite clearly still het het up about these rumours right up to her death. She kind of talks about the Danby family and her will. Um, It's quite keen to get some money back from them for her hospitality that she feels that they didn't repay her very well with these stories. What's your particular take, Cordelia, on, on Alice's account? Is it truthful or will we never know? Well, we'll never know. I mean, it's obviously Alice's version of events. We've been quite keen to find out what Anne Danby had to say. And Joe, in a recent trip to the archive in North Yorkshire, found an account by Anne Danby. But Anne doesn't have very much to say about Alice. So there's a sense in which, while 
Alice, many years later, is still going over these events in her mind. Suzanne Trill, who works on our project, refers to the third book as some kind of trauma narrative. But it's something that Anne Danby seems to have moved on from this, this falling out. And she's more upset about events in her own family. I suppose if you're talking about something a loss in your writing, that is a kind of self-healing and kind of therapy. And I suppose if something does bother you so much, then I, and it's the truth as, as you saw it, then I suppose you would write about it and try and put your story across so that you are heard and understood by other people. Another thing, Cordelia, you, you just, just touch on this project, this Alice Thornton research project, which um, is being worked on. I know you've spent a lot of time, years, studying Alice's story. What is this Alice Thornton Research Project? It's a three-year project in partnership with Durham Cathedral, who hold two of the manuscripts, and it's funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council. And the reason, obviously, we're doing this podcast is partly to talk about the research project and spread information and knowledge about that, but what are the other goals of the project? Our main aim is to produce an online searchable edition of the four books written by Alice Thornton so that everyone can access them and and read her account for themselves. We're on the podcast today because we want to make Alice's life and writings better known. And we'll be doing a number of, of public events. For example, we'll be at Durham Cathedral in autumn 2023, giving a number of talks having some of her books and other writings on display. Um, We're going to stage a one-woman play based on her life. Right. Okay. That's really interesting. So lots of different things going on to do with Alice's story. What's the website exactly? Joe? do you have the details? Our website is being set up as we speak. It should be there very soon. But I can tell you that our Twitter handle is at Thornton underscore books where we tweet little nuggets from Alice's writings on this day stuff or things that are relevant to particular hashtags that are doing the rounds. So do follow us there. And as soon as the website's up, we will be sharing that. Fantastic. When's this play going to happen then? How can we go and see that? So that will be in autumn 2023. It's called The Remarkable Deliverances of Alice Thornton. And it's written and acted by Debbie Cannon. Okay. Will, what can you tell us about the plans to tell Alice's story at Midland Castle, particularly, where she had this very interesting episode trying to help her sister give birth? Yeah, I mean, I, I hope the podcast uh, and, and, and speaking, uh, hearing from uh, Cordelia and Joe has shown how Alice's life is and the work that she produced is full of nuance and, and kind of complication and and it speaks to a whole range of issues. But specifically for Midland, we're going gonna to hear about Alice alongside a cast of other kind of characters from the story of the castle whose lives haven't yet been explored. So she's going to be a feature of the information panels which are being installed at the castle as part of a wider project to refresh the historical information there. And that's due to be completed in mid-August of this year. But I hope as Cordelia and Joe's research continues and with the wider project we'll find new ways of sharing some of these insights. And I know Joe and Cordelia are very excited to share more and hopefully if English Heritage have the capacity and uh, there is an appetite, we'll hear more about them through various media and if we're lucky, perhaps another podcast, so watch this space. A couple of final thoughts then from all of you. Cordelia first, if I can. What have you learned about Alice's life over the time that you've researched her? Because you've obviously almost got to know her as a person who's, who's flesh and blood, but she's been gone for a long time so what's that like 
I suppose I have sympathy for Alice because I've spent so long reading her accounts. I think there are kind of people who, who read a bit of Alice and think, you know, this woman, she's kind of moaning on again. She's a bit of a drama queen. You know, she eats a bit of bad fish. She says she nearly died. But I think when we do look into her life, she's, I think as a woman in the 17th century, she's very much a victim of, of the actions of various men. So the fact that she doesn't inherit from her father, the fact that her husband gambles away a lot of the money so that her, her daughters don't have a secure inheritance, that she has to rely on the local vicar who marries her daughter. But then, you know, obviously people gossip about that relationship. So I think there's a real sense about how difficult it was to be a woman in the 17th century, even if initially you've got kind of, you seem to be born into quite a privileged background. What do you think, Joe? Have you become quite sympathetic to Alice's travails, as she describes them? Yeah, I mean, in some ways, obviously, like all the accounts of her of her birthing experiences and and losing her kids. I mean, I'm a medical. I kind of do medical history or the history of medicine by by kind of training. So that's really what I'm interested in. I think it's really fascinating to see how you know she's obviously writing with hindsight about a lot of the stuff that she's writing about and sort of thinking about how that might you know how memory impacts on this too and also obviously hindsight in terms of explaining things in a way that's providential so oh you know well clearly this happened because then this happened or because of this or and so there's a very specific kind of um point to be made about when but yeah about when she's writing so i mean like any human being she is nuanced and she has particular characteristics she has particular ways of writing if you spend a long time with someone like that you kind of get used to their turn of phrase and I suppose you know there's a form of writing that she's kind of doing as well so it's not you know it, she's writing in a particular style but yeah I think it's 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 quite remarkable to try and insert yourself into that kind of way of being and way of thinking and as Cordelia says there's a lot of backstory as to why she comes across as being quite moany <laughs> on occasion but in a way you think well god I would be as well if I was her she's a fascinating woman but Anne Danby does kind of live in her head rent free a bit I would say right okay as you touched on earlier well that's very interesting thank you very much all of you for talking to us about uh, the life and times of Alice Thornton and her particular connection as well to Midland Castle looking forward to finding out a bit more about the play that comes on and also when the website where people can view her writings will be published. I think that'll be really interesting for people interested in women's history and particularly this period of the Civil War in England. So thank you all for taking the time to talk to us on the podcast today. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we're making waves with the history of the British seaside. The very origins can be traced back into the 16th and the 17th century when people were traveling to spas to take the waters to improve their health. One of these early spas was Scarborough. And of course, Scarborough has the sea as well. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>